Adi, I imagine you're a big-time property investor? I'm the opposite to a big-time property investor. I know how to grow businesses. I'm, I'm good with startups. I'm good with growth businesses. I can buy listed equities. I can invest in funds. But um, I'm definitely not very sophisticated when it comes to property investment, I regret to inform you. I hear you. There's only so many things you can be expert in. And most people who invest in property are really flying blind. That's where performance property comes into it. They're a high-end property advisory firm who work with some of Australia's smartest investors. Performance property will help you strategically grow your portfolio, utilize data sets, and make sure you're not overpaying. They even conduct detailed due diligence and even help with existing assets. They essentially make buying property as easy as buying a BHP share. If you've got more than $500,000 in equity to invest and are looking to build a multi-million dollar portfolio, give performance property a call on 03-8539-0300 or visit their website at performanceproperty.com.au. Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor, and I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, Executive Chairman of Catapult Sports and Serial Investor. In today's episode, we talk about the ever-increasing Australian house prices, Tesla's terrible week, and the rise and rise of Netflix. And we're back for week 11 of The Contrarians, another big week of growth for the pod, unlike the share market. So, Adir, have you had a big week? Uh, I've had a similar week to the week before <laughs> with limited ability to talk about it. So we're going to focus on your week because your week is going to have been um, less stressful and contentious and you probably did something fun. Is that right? Probably a little bit less stressful. I obviously flew back from Singapore, we talked about last week. And actually today I went to my first NBL game for the year, uh, which obviously I think you've, you've, you would have been to a few games already. You're you're well connected into that world. I, I think um, what Larry Kesterman has done to the NBL with Jeremy Lolliger is quite incredible. I mean, if you think back what the NBL was, you know, five or ten years ago, oh, I think it was basically pretty much was dead. virtually right. dead. And, yeah. and Larry comes in and effectively buys a league or I think he owns half of the league or whatever it is. I think he's got the whole league now. He's got the whole league. Feeling, yeah. And so, I, like, so I, yeah, I've been to some games, but the the momentum behind that organisation is completely incredible. And the start of the season, this season, was really exciting and it had so much buzz around it. And, you know, obviously I saw Jeremy at your event, Adam, um, the DigiSit event, and had a nice chat with him about it. But it's it's just really remarkable what they've done to that league. What Tell me about the game that you went to. How was that? It was great. I saw Melbourne United play Illawarra today. So Melbourne at the top of the ladder. It was – they actually had the 1993 Melbourne Tigers uh, premiership team. I think it was the first – maybe the first ever time Melbourne won. And Andrew Gaze, Leonard Copeland, Dave Simmons, Warwick Gibbs. So this is two of the dads of the NBA stars. So Josh Goody's dad uh, and obviously Ben Simmons' dad. Uh, and obviously Andrew Gaze, probably the greatest – Actually, not probably. Definitely the greatest Australian basketball ever. What do you mean the greatest Australian? Because, you know, you remember I've said to you 
that you've only, that people in your world can only be the best or the worst, right? So <laughs> tell me what that means, the best basketball. You mean the greatest – he was the greatest Australian basketball ex- export because at the time that he was big uh, – he only made it to D- Division One college, right? He was a D1 college player. Didn't oh, he, play, it- he played – no, he played San Antonio. Won a, I think he won a um, ring with San Antonio, for memory. Andrew Gaze? Pretty sure he did. Let's, let, me, let me just look that up while, while you talk. You know, he was the big. He was a great export because basketball in those days was not does did not have, does, did not have the popularity that it does today. And the NBA in Australia, I would say, is almost ubiquitous, particularly amongst amongst the younger generation, which was just not the case in his time. And I think that you know his success as an Australian basketball export, and also he's very charismatic, his personality as well. It really opened up that sport to a whole new generation of fans back back at the time in Australia. And the guys did win a, a ring with San Antonio in 1999, just for, for completeness. I'm, I'm not sure. I think they give it to everybody who played during the year. So I'm not sure if he played in the actual final series. But they showed the 93, that 93 win, and it was just that, that iconic team. And one of the great moments in Australian sport is when Andrew Gaze embraced his dad, Lindsay Gaze, who was, if you remember, the coach of Melbourne at the time. And it was as warm an embrace as you could ever see, just the, the sheer joy of, of two guys who, who had wanted something for so long and they've achieved it. It was, and obviously both guys are such great guys. Andrew Gaze, I was playing, I was playing golf at Albert Park. As you know, I play golf pretty early in the morning. I was, I was like, this is about probably three and a half years ago. I'm playing golf at Albert Park and there's this group of, could have been five guys in front of me and they're all big guys. Anyway, I hit my ball and they were going pretty slow and the guy goes, oh, um, and goes, they're telling us to play through. I think there was, there was two of us. So we start walking to play through and I'm walking up to my ball I said, oh, mate, do you know where my ball is? And the guy goes, oh, it's just over there. I look up, it's Andrew Gaze. He's, he's telling me where my ball is. So I got a bit of a, bit of a thrill. Yeah. He would have been – he'd be quite good, I reckon, because my experience with um, elite athletes mm, when Jordan. they turn their hand to golf is that a surprising number of them are extremely good at golf and, like, play off pretty low single-digit handicaps without much effort. I think Brendan Goddard, the AFL footballer, was off – if not scratch, pretty close to it. Ricky Ponting's pretty close to scratch. I think there's quite a few, you're right, a few, quite a lot of good golfers. Donald Trump apparently plays like <laughs> the single digits. I'm not sure I'd put him yeah. in the athlete. How accurate that is. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. he might also be a multi-billionaire or broke, and he also plays off low single digits yeah. or 25. But I know I really do think that, it, like people say, he's very good at golf. So there you go. Anyway, I think he said that. Anyway, back to NBL. So I uh, went to the game today. It was it was almost a full house again. It pretty much always is. Uh, and just the product. I went to my my well, so my second NBA game at the beginning of the year in New York. You obviously got a lot of NBA games given given catapult. But I went to I was at Madison Madison Square Garden. A I was blown away by just the cost of it all. I think we and we were sitting at the top. So it was four of us, two adults, two kids sitting at not the top top, but pretty much the top. Uh, the seats are a thousand bucks for four seats, and then we bought. How much do you reckon? Oh, three fries and a water cost in Australian dollars. Well, I think I can say in US dollars. Like the water's probably eight or ten dollars. Is that right? No, I think the water was a bit less than that. But tell and me how, f- how much do you think everything was in Australian dollars? <laughs> Just to, for our listeners who are mostly Australian, seventy dollars. Yeah, it was about. I think it was sixty. Yeah. For three fries and a drink. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and so not only was the, the food exorbitant and the seats exorbitant, I actually find the NBL, obviously the NBA players are, are more skilled, but I actually found, find the NBL product just a much better product. It's, it's, it's shorter. It's more interesting as in the games a bit shorter. The NBA game, I think, is a bit boring, goes a bit long. I think they've done an incredible job adapting NBA to NBL and have actually made it 
better for everything, but probably the skill level, which which not much you can do. But it's probably is the I think they say the second best league in the world now. It's, that's what the guys say. It's certainly up there. Yeah, it's become an amazing theater for the NBA. What I love about um, the NBL is how family friendly. It is, and that is fairly typical of sport in Australia. You know, you talk about the cost of tickets. I mean, the NFL, the cost of tickets yeah. to the NFL is just absolutely exorbitant because the prices mm. are set by well, the teams. Private, the team private keeps business, the yeah. revenue, the home team. Yeah, it's a private business, and that's where they're—that's a big source of their profits, frankly. And so, you know, you look at the NBL or you look at the AFL or the NRL, like it's so affordable to go along to these things. And, you know, I remember a few years ago I spoke at, at – um, they invited me to speak at a Melbourne United – like business function followed by the game. And so, you know, they very nicely gave me a courtside seat. I was sitting there. I think I took my son and one of his friends. And um, the experience was not less exciting than the experience I had when I was sitting. I wasn't quite courtside with the NBA, but close enough to courtside. It wasn't a worse experience at the NBL. It was really fun and it had a really nice family atmosphere to it. I totally agree. They've done a great job. Speaking of family atmosphere, I was there today, obviously, and I was sitting directly in front. When I mean directly, like the person sitting right behind me was Larry's Larry Kesselman's mum, who. So we talking about family. And Larry was, was a little bit down. <laughs> it was about ten seats down. He, he haven't said good day, and he's he's such a good, he's such a great sales guy, Larry. He's still this guy's a billionaire, and he's still one of the great salespeople in Australia. I reckon he is um, up there with with the best, and it, so that, done an incredible job. It's it's such a great. Anybody listening, just, and you haven't been to an NBL game, you're right. It's such a great family. My wife. Loves taking the kids to to NBL games. It is by far the best family sport in the country without without peer. Yeah, that's true. It's indoors. Every experience I've had with Larry Kesselman, I wouldn't say I know him exceptionally well, but I know him well enough. Every experience I've had with him has been um, I've learnt something from him, um, and he's he's the disposition he has when I've interacted with him has been so encouraging. I have to say, like I uh, could not could not speak highly enough about him. I think it's helped for someone. Who, the longevity of people who work for them and almost everybody who seems to work for Larry works for him forever. Like he's had this rusted on Scott Scavridis, obviously he runs Acquire, which is a fantastic business that he co-owns with Larry. Which is a, I mean, that's got to be a cash machine, that business. We used it for a while. I mean, that's a business process outsourcing business. I, I remember I saw, I mean, I don't know from him, I saw some numbers reported somewhere at one stage. I mean, those businesses, this is what my point about unsexy businesses, business process outsourcing, that is an unsexy business. You know, the pro business that that was bought by for a fortune, boring, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, boring business process outsourcing. Like just find a way to do something really well that does not attract a heap of competitors because it's sexy. And I think Larry has done that um, with his business as well and just a tremendously successful business. I reckon that's probably Larry's best, if not Larry's best one of his. I think it, they've got, they've got like 10,000 employees or, or close to it. Uh, I got, and Scott told me recently, but just in terms of Larry and the NBL itself, so is that he, he bought half the NBL for $7 million. This is probably about five or six years ago when it was really on its knees and nobody wanted it. I think it was much longer than that, wasn't it? Like 10 or, or maybe 12? It was 10, maybe it was 10 years ago. And then I think he maybe cleaned up the rest of it at some point. So, But he also did pump a bunch of money in because it was obviously dying yes. and needed to, to survive. But I've heard that that's worth, it's worth upwards of $400 million, the, the league, is what I've been told. I don't know how accurate that is, but he – so not only has he done an incredible job rejuvenating the sport, he's actually justifiably made a lot of money along the way as well. So one of the great stories, there actually aren't really any other Australian sports leagues that are privately owned. So he's sort of on, on an island there as well. And, and really, and I think that's probably why it's such a, it's, it's so, um, 
delightfully commercial and they, they, they don't take themselves too seriously. I like how they got like they, even the cleaners are sponsored and the and the cheerleaders are everything's everything and actually yeah. speaking of sponsorship, I think that I know it's a young black and white, but I think the best Australian sponsorship of any sponsorship that's ever happened is Hungry Jacks and Jack Cowan's been a great Jack Cowan is another fantastic guy, has been a great supporter of the NBL. Uh, I think for well over a decade, and, and you know when they, they they basically got, I think they got it from maybe college basketball. But the, I think the best activation of any activation in the country. So for any marketers who listen to the show, this is sort of the called the gold standard of, of activation. So if you if the opposition team, and you probably know this idea, if the opposition team misses two free throws in a row, Hungry Jacks give everybody both watching at the game a free hamburger. Uh, so, uh, so what you basically have is the opposition misses a, a so opposition's lining up for the free throw, and there's this massive excitement in the, in the crowd. They miss the first one, and the crowd's just going off. So you've got the the whole crowd one time, the whole crowd screaming out "Hungry Jacks!" Like think about the, oh, the. I mean, that's a very unbelievable piece of like immersive marketing. Well, it gets better. I mean. So they've got the whole crowd. Then then when they miss two, the whole crowd just goes nuts for a burger that costs the buck and most people don't even redeem anyway. But I think yeah. I was told that, uh, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school here, but I'm pretty sure when people do redeem it, like the average spend is like 14 or 15 bucks anyway. So for a burger that costs like 30 cents, Hungry Jacks are made, and obviously Hungry Jacks spent multi-million dollars sponsoring the league. That's why they get this great activation. But it is the ultimate in activations in Australia. There's nothing comes close to this. This is I'm going to tell you another great activation of the same kind. Before I t- say that, I want to say something that you'll find interesting. When I talk, when I speak to the NBA league office, like all the way up to the top, let's say the commissioner, like they know what the NBL is and they know who Larry is and they've got this huge amount of respect for um, what has been done in Australia. So definitely it has a, it has a footprint in the sport. So this is my activation that is similar to that activation. You know Leonard Hammersfeld? Yes. Who yes, runs yes. Buzz? This is the, the, the first class They do stuff, a lot yeah, of the, and the business class stuff. Airline. Yeah, that's right. Although, although if you go and, yeah, you know, airline business. and you get yeah. a little pack in business class or first class, or whatever, that's it. It's a great business. And so they did this activation. I'm not going to do it justice because I'm going to forget the airline. I actually was on this airline and got this activation. So they make they made this deal with Toomey. And they made the toiletries bag a Toomey bag. What's Toomey, sorry? But Toomey is actually an American brand now owned by Samsonite. So anyway, so he did, he did, they did this activation where the bag, the kit that you got was this Toomey toiletries bag. It was actually really nice. But this is the kicker. So Toomey has got, is well known for this um, kind of this feature they have, which is if you buy a suitcase, there's a piece of leather on the suitcase and they'll um, – brand your initials onto the leather in store. And so what uh, Leonard came up with is this activation where you would get this toiletries bag in business or first class on this airline. It was an American airline, I think. And you could take the toiletries bag into a Toomey store and get your initials branded onto the toiletries (laughs) bag. Can you imagine what that did for Toomey sales? I mean, they're getting all of these premium customers going into Toomey stores. Genius. Like, Toomey should have been paying them a fortune for that activation. Well, they probably did, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? They must have paid something for that. Well, I know what the economics are of that, but I think I'll I'll have a price on my head if I share them. But I can tell (laughs) you that the value that Toomey got out of that vastly exceeded like whatever their input cost of doing it was. It was a really very, very smart activation. And I think this idea of bringing people into stores and then, you know, like you get this great conversion rate on this basket size, this big basket size, which is what you've described with Hungry Jacks. You know, 
what, what I, I think that's going to maybe have – we're going to see some interesting of activations of that kind because a lot of these online businesses that are multi-channel, what they're starting to find is that people actually spend more or have a high conversion rate when they're in stores. And so I think we're going to see some more of those kind of interesting activations over the next few years. Well, as you know, we opened up our first retail Your store, store is amazing a few months in ago. Chat, in chat and it's amazing. Yeah, we're seeing the same thing. So we see basket sizes of sort of three to four X what you see online, which is – there's a bit of uh, – self-fulfilling prophecy there because if you're likely to spend more you're likely to want to go in as well but but we certainly see that the face-to-face is very helpful for, for that yes absolutely well, what i the way i feel about stores for online businesses is that so you need to look so you know i'm involved in that business yeah business which i was actually wearing yeah i was wearing one of the suits the blazers today actually i don't know why anybody i don't think i don't know enough of institutions <laughs> to make this pitch worthwhile so i'm not you know, for commercial reasons like i don't know why anyone is wearing blazers oh, 100%. that are not tailor-made by institute like the the price of them is competitive with what you buy off the rack. And I was wearing it today and I was just thinking this fit is is unbelievable. Anyway, so And you've got big um, biceps, obviously that needs to be tailored. <laughs> I can never respond to that. Um, so, so basically, um now I've sort of lost my whole train of thought now. Oh no, I'm talking about stores. So in Stitcher has a lot of stores, quite a few stores. Uh, and um and so you know I've learned a lot about stores through that business. There are store economics are very sophisticated. I told you Trent Peterson, who does a lot of work with Brett Blundy, you know, taught me quite a bit about stores as well. Um, and so I think one is you need to know how to run the economics of a store. But also what I love about multi-channel businesses that open stores is that you can make money out of the store, but also it is such an incredible branding exercise. I mean, your store in Chadston, I've been into it. It's wonderful and it is such an immersive brand experience for luxury escapes that just on the brand level alone it's dramatically good plus you get to make money out of it so i think you know i think multi-channel we're just going to see the continued growth of multi-channel is my guess over the next decade and daryl wade who, who's the one of the great founders in australia who found mm-hmm. Trepid, the travel business he actually closed his stores he's because he ended up sort of selling through flight center they've done very well but when he had tw- he had 27 stores and he basically said there were 27 billboards, and I've always yeah. remembered that. I've interviewed Daryl for my last podcast, but Daryl, just a quick story on the Wade family, just because it's so interesting. So Daryl founded Intrepid, which is a sort of four or $500 million going to a billion dollar business, I suspect. Daryl's father was the guy who brought Target to Australia. So he was, he was, he was the, the story's a long one, but he somehow brought Target to Australia. Oh, so Daryl's, and I think his dad passed away, and then Daryl's mum had this property sort of empire and independently had a very successful property sort of empire. I'm assuming 100 plus million sort of range, but very successful. I think out of Geelong. And Daryl's brother had a travel business, I think called Travel Bag, which was in the UK, which is like a mini flight center. I think he sold it for like a couple of hundred million bucks. So four people in the, four different family members had four different hundred million dollar plus businesses in completely different field or two travel, but completely different. It was just what uh, unbelievable family and Daryl, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. It's like, you know, the Emmanuel family in the US, like Rahm Emanuel. Ari, Ari Gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rahm yeah. Emanuel was like the chief of staff to Obama and then became Obama. the of Chicago. And he's the ambassador. He's now the ambassador. To China, somewhere. maybe? Yes, China, Japan. Yeah, somewhere like that. Yep. Oh, it could be Japan. Yep. Could be right. Um, and like Ari Emanuel, Ari Gold, right, yep. runs IMGWMA. It's huge business. One of the most powerful people in Hollywood. In entertainment globally, without a doubt. And he runs the UFC business as well. So it's, he owns a UFC business. And you know, there's another sibling. I don't know if it's a sister or a he's brother. A doctor. He's a doctor. Yeah, I think not just a doctor, like some professor or surgeon or something. Yeah. And it's, it's like, can you imagine surgeon. sitting around that table? I mean, that that is like a high. I did. 
compared. Ari Emanuel did a really good interview probably three months ago with Freakonomics podcast, yeah. which is a really good podcast. Yeah. And he talked about it. Like, and I think Ra may have actually done one a few weeks later because uh, I think Emanuel now owns Wondery, I think, or there's some ownership link there. So he owns the podcast that is Freakonomics. And he, it was a really good podcast, worth listening to. I think we should go. That's, that's a good segue to our first proper story uh, on the property market. And new figures on house prices for September quarter from Domain showed that national house price is now within $2,000 of a new record, with Adelaide and Perth already at all-time highs. Meanwhile, The Guardian reported that a household earning the median income of $105,000 can now only comfortably afford 13% of homes on the market, the lowest share since data has been collected. Three years ago, the median household income could afford 40% of homes. Unsurprisingly, the Salvation Army in Australia revealed that its waitlist for housing now includes a staggering 175,000 families. So are you worried about the continually skyrocketing residential property sector? My answer is going to sound an awful like an Adam Schwab answer, which is, I think... This is the single biggest problem facing Australia today. <laughs> Sounds good. That's a great answer. Straight yeah. to the extreme. But I really do think that that is – so you think about the problems that are facing Australia today. We've got some geopolitical security challenges in our region and more broadly in the world. We just had the voice vote, which obviously is very important to you know a group of large group of people. There, there are all sorts of challenges, ageing population and uh, 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 some healthcare challenges. I think there is no bigger challenge than – the housing crisis, I'll call it, in Australia. And I'll go further than that and be more extreme and I will say that this kind of problem is a let-them-eat-cake-French-revolution-level problem where if you keep going for an extended period of time and very large portions of the population feel like the system is fundamentally stacked against them and they can't get access to the most basic human need or one of the most basic ones which is shelter that they can own like society our society is in big trouble if we don't solve this problem like the number the statistic i read recently was that if you take the average household income in australia which i think is just a bit north of a hundred thousand dollars one hundred five thousand, yeah it's median median yep and um you buy you let that that household buy the average priced house in australia do you know what percentage of that household's income goes to repayments right now? I think it's like thirty-five to forty percent or something, isn't it? Ah, uh, you're all you're all over it. Yeah, I, th- I think I remember it was about a third, yeah. but yes, absolutely. And so that is not doable, right? Like, like that cannot be happening. And so I, you know, I've got lots of thoughts about how this problem can be dealt with, but fundamentally. And there's all sorts of um, short-term popular solutions that people try to come up with, but this housing crisis, it, it is. It is a package that includes it's too expensive for people to buy a house and it's too hard for people to rent a house. It's all part of the same problem. It's all a housing stock problem. And I'm going to say something and you can tell me if you agree with this because it's maybe a slightly radical idea. But so, so I think Australia is at a point where we need to decide if we want to start if we want to live in mega cities, and so a mega city is a 10 million population plus city, and the way those cities look is that people live in high-rise apartment towers in very dense cities, and the upside of those cities is it's very convenient things, lots of access to services open all the time, um, 
Australians don't really seem to want that. I can't even get a coffee at two thirty in the afternoon. So, like, and the downside is like extremely, it's extremely high population density, and I, so I don't think Australians want to live in mega cities in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. And so, my view is the only way to solve this problem long term is that um, we've got to move out of the cities. And so this is my proposal to move out of the cities. Before, we get, to sol- before we get to yep. solutions, yep. which I think we should get to. but not to solve like the biggest problem we'll get of back. our we'll generation. Get to it. Yeah. And you cut me off. I'm we'll not saying, it. what if uh, I drop dead during this podcast and you're going to spend we'll, the next 30 years with a housing problem? Well, I'll dedicate the no, podcast no, to you if that happens. But uh, <laughs> I think, in terms of pick up what you said, there's a housing stock issue. I'm not. Yeah, that there to an extent there is a supply issue, but I'm not sure that's the full problem. Uh, in a sense that, and I've been banging on about this housing probably since about 2006, and I've I've been saying housing's going to crash for 17 years, and people have been laughing at me for 17 years, and and so far the clock hasn't struck 12 yet because uh, housing keeps going up. And I, I, my review of why the housing keeps going up is because, well, two reasons, but but both effectively one of the same is one the RBA. Well, three reasons, actually. One, the RBA continually keeps interest rates far too low. Even now, when we talk about interest rates being high, they're still, as we talked about last week, they're still in real terms negative. So while the US is 2% interest rate, when you look at interest rate less inflation, which is what you need to look at, Australia is still negative. So the RBA, who are more critical than almost any organisation, continually run these expansionary policies to benefit house owners. And at the detriment of non-owners. But you know, one day it's going to. F- but one day that could flip suddenly. So the interest rates will go up to X. But, but, but they, should, they should be three percent higher than they are, and they, they still they're, they're quibbling over twenty five bips. Like it's, they're not even close. These idiots. All right, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. But all of a sudden, that's going to flip. I just want to say, all of a sudden, so you're going to put rates up, they're going to get to X, and then all of a sudden, inflation is going to be tamed and plummet, and then you'll end up with a all of a sudden a very large real interest rate. That will make you happy? If interest rates – well, yes or no. If interest rates were 8% now, yeah. the house pricing situation would not be nowhere near as bad as it is. House yeah, it would pricing would be 40%. Interest. Oh, it would also well, be a recession. We've had this discussion. We've had this recession versus inflation discussion, and you know my view that recession is bad for 5% of people and inflation is bad for 98% of people. So I'm going to take the 5% over the 98 because uh, right. everybody's fearful of recession because they're idiots because they just haven't seen inflation ever or seen their lifetimes. Uh, so one is the RBA being the – biggest pack of fools ever living on in Australia. Two is is banks who, I think I heard the, the guy who, Joseph Healy, who runs Judo on a different podcast, and he actually made the good point. I think if you go back a few years, I think business lending and resident, residential lending historically was about the same. And now residential lending is like three to four X. It's like way outstrips business lending. So banks have just gone haywire over lending to people to to buy a house. So what that means is eventually house prices are based almost solely on how much someone can pay. So what I I mean by that is people use, most people use debt for housing, take out the really, really top end of the market. So most people, let's say you can borrow $2 million and you've had 500 grand in equity, you'll pay $2.5 million for that house because you're going to pay as much as you can because that's what everybody does. So that's what, so if if the bank was only lending $1 million and you had 500 grand of equity, that same house is 1.5 million. So reason to, and that, that's sort of interlinked reasons because obviously the interest rate is linked to how much banks will lend. But if you look at, if you combine those two, the reason why housing is expensive as it is, is nothing to do with the supply side. It's purely demand side and what banks are willing to lend. And it's purely a, a debt-driven pricing rise. Reason three, which is semi-linked to those reasons, but a little bit different, is 
the both parties, so Liberal and Labor, have run this consistent a tax policy that consistently favours homeowners at the detriment of renters. And there's two elements there. One is we've got ridiculous unfair policies like the principal, and I obviously own a place, so I'm a beneficiary of this, but if you own a house and your house goes up in value, you don't pay tax on that. So if you, you buy a house for a million bucks, you sell for 40, which which happens, you pay zero tax, So which is insane. You should be paying – what I think it used to be is you'd pay – they look at how much inflation is, and obviously you wouldn't have to pay on the inflated level, but above inflation, you'd pay some sort of amount in tax. Even if it's a capital gains level, you'd pay something on it. So, so that's never going to happen in Australia. I'm not saying it will happen, but it should happen. That will. Ne- I agree with you, but it's no pos- it's no possibility of happening because no government can say that before they get elected and then mm-hmm. get elected, and no co- no government can say that after Insane. they get elected and stay elected. It's so not going to happen. happen. I'm, not, anyway, I'm not saying I'm not saying what will happen. I'm saying what should happen. Uh, and what's caused this prop, this mess? Uh, so that's, and there's other things like discounted capital gains, which I think is probably a bit more reasonable because at least you're paying something. Uh, but and the other thing is when you look, when you build infrastructure. So Dan Andrews, uh, we pick on Dan a bit, and he's gone now. But when you do a Dan Andrews ten billion dollar railway project, for example, or, or okay, let's say you're building this railway project, you build this new station in Tarnit, for example, making up a boat. I'm not saying this is where a station is, but let's say you build a station in Tarnate. There was no railway station there before. So that, that station is paid for by taxpayers, yep. of which it's like because the tax system's all screwed up, it's it's not paid fairly, but taxpayers pay for this station. Station gets built, and what happens? Suddenly, people want people are willing to pay more to live near Tarnate now because there's a station there. Previously, there wasn't. So what happens is the rent goes up because there's more demand for the same housing stock. Rent goes up, which means the housing housing is more valuable because rent effectively is is the input into the value of houses. So everybody pays for this railway to Tarnate and everybody thinks, oh, what a great guy this premier is because he built this new railway station. All that happens is you've shifted money from taxpayers, which is often sort of low-income earners as well or medium-income earners, to people who own the capital stock being being the property stock being the ha- so if you own that land, that infrastructure spend gets capitalised in the value of the land. So it's another transfer of wealth from people who don't own property and are paying tax to people who do own property. So there's multiple reasons why the cards are stacked against renters and non-homeowners, and that half the time people don't even know about it. You got these got idiots like the Greens coming up with stupid rent cap solutions which don't address the actual problem because they're, they're just not smart enough to understand what the problem is. Well, I think they might understand the problem. I think they're smart enough to understand who yeah, their constituents. Yeah. and what's going to appeal to vo- to voters, right? I mean, I think, you know, never never <laughs> ascribe to stupidity what you could ascribe to vote buying <laughs> amongst politicians. By the way, the politician that has been most consistently vocal about this problem of housing in an intelligent way, I think, is a guy called Jason Falinski up on the northern lost his seat, Sydney, didn't he? Yeah. who unfortunately mm-hmm. lost his seat to Sophie Scamps last election, who, who I think might mm-hmm. lose her seat after some of her... Uh, Gaza remarks recently, so I think Jason hopefully will be back into that seat, but he's been a consistent advocate. You know, in terms of your train station, the problem is that somebody has to build infrastructure. I mean, as the population grows, there needs to be infrastructure, and it has to be the government that builds the infrastructure, and that is a consequence of building infrastructure. Like, the alternative is having an inadequate amount of infrastructure. I was What I was mostly wondering, by the way, if you don't like that station, you are not going to like one of my solutions to this problem. But, um, but So just, just on that, though, I'm not criticising the infrastructure. I'm, I'm criticising if you taxed land rather than taxed income, for example, the land should pay for that infrastructure because that's where the benefit falls, is my point. Not that we shouldn't build translations. But there is land tax for there is land tax for investment properties. But if I if I own my a, a primary residence, I'm not I'm not paying tax. My primary residence goes up. That's why pricing. It's one of the reasons why houses yes. keep going up because the 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 
game is tipped in favour of, of homeowners already, so you just can't get in. But in fairness to, um, in fairness to the, the idea of not paying tax on capital appreciation on your primary residence, if you did have to pay tax on that appreciation, people would find it very hard to move house because they would sell and lose a significant portion of their money and then they would have to buy another house. But the other house would be cheaper because everything's gone down. Well, I'm not sure that maths works. Like I've thought about this quite – you might be right, but I think that is a, that is a roll of the dice and a game of, of you know, the risk of unintended consequences doing that. Let, let me tell you, number one – so I think there is an undersupply. I want to tell you some problems that have been told to me by various developers and builders. So there are some real problems with – um, stock at the moment because obviously there continues to be strong immigration in Australia, which generally I'm in favour of, but there needs to be housing supply for immigration. And so one problem is that big builders, like the really big builders, they're not going to build the kind of houses that most people need. Like like those real top-end builders, like a Mervac is not going to build your house, okay? They're mid-level develop builders, they're all going broke, so there's a big problem in Australia. There's a huge number of builders going broke. Literally every week, some, some other mid-sized builder is in trouble or going broke. And at the bottom end, like it's not, it's not easy to get – to pass the regulatory hurdles now to become a builder and to build like larger kind of stock. And so there's definitely – and so there's input cost challenges as well. So there's definitely some construction problems and it's, it can be a nightmare historically in – in the big states of Australia, the populated states of Australia, to get um, planning permission and to go through that process. And it's long and it's slow and it takes ages to get developments completed. I'm not a property developer. I don't invest in property developers. I've got like no, no skin in this game at all. But that's been a historical problem. To me, I think I don't want to live in mega cities. Like that's, I think one of the beautiful things about Australia is we don't live in mega cities. And so I would like to see these two ideas discussed i'm going to tell you my two ideas okay can we include like a bell ringing here mark just a ding 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 okay here's my ideas idea number one this is how i want to get people out of the cities so the the number one way to get people out of the cities um is to have jobs out of the cities but that's difficult like adelaide for example like adelaide properties starting to go berserk as well so is perth mm. and but i think adelaide's a great city like it's, yeah i love adelaide um, it's a great city and I think, you know, the property is still reasonably priced there but they've got a bit of a problem of jobs, by the way. And so, like, you you need jobs in order to get people to move somewhere and so my thoughts would be the Premier of New South Wales, for example, could say that um, Gosford, for example, because I know Gosford is an area on the central coast that they're trying to increase the, the um, industry and population of. So Gosford could be an, a region where there is a payroll tax exemption. And then what would happen is all of these large companies would go and shift a ton of their jobs into Gosford because payroll tax is five per, circa 5%. That is a big saving. And all of a sudden, I think you'd have lots and lots of jobs in Gosford in a similar way to, I think the Andrews government moved a ton of public service jobs into Geelong when manufacturing stopped in Geelong. And so, you know, that kept Geelong vibrant. So the first thing I would do is have these development zones where you would have payroll tax moratoriums or exemptions or whatever you might have and then you'll start moving jobs into those locations and then the second thing which kind of augments that is this country is going to have to start building some high-speed rail between cities 
I don't, th- I don't think it's economically feasible. I think when you do the costing of it, it's like hundreds of billions of dollars. So, I just don't think it makes sense. So let me give you an example. So there, the New South, I'm going to stay with New South Wales. So the New South Wales government under Perrottet um, committed half a billion dollars to improving the rail link between Sydney, Gosford and Newcastle, the latter two on the central coast. The longer term plan is to have a 250 kilometre an hour train 25 minutes to Gosford, 60 minutes to Newcastle. They're not going to do that for half a billion dollars, obviously. Like that is. Well, it's costing Victoria 10 billion for like five stations in the city. I know, but. I know it's a tunnel. All but. right, but um, but there is there are some issues with what it costs to build infrastructure in Victoria. Don't know if you've noticed, but there was there is a high speed train that's supposed to be going out to Geelong. It's on again, off again, and so I think you've got to like. This idea of it is or it isn't economically viable, I think my view on that's a little bit different. Look, I'm very opposed to the suburban rail loop in Victoria, just in Melbourne, just because I think it's going to cost $150 billion and who the heck knows if it's anyone's actually going to use it. It's insane. But building a fast train to Gosford, building a fast train to Geelong, maybe building a fast train to other centres uh, as well, to me that is just infrastructure whose cost you need to absorb in order to start decentralising the population out of the major eastern seaboard cities predominantly in Australia. And I think it's going to need to happen or else in, I don't know, 50 years' time, we have a risk that we're going to be living in mega cities, and that will be a completely different way of life to the life that Australians are used to living and that we think is the Australian way of life. I think, you've, I think your payroll tax thing is probably okay. I think, I think the infrastructure one... I don't agree with that. Uh, we can very easily fix house prices if we want to. It's just that nobody wants to for the political reasons you talked about before. Because you can, if you taxed housing properly and you had an RBA that wasn't hell-bent on protecting homeowners at, above all other costs, and Michelle Bullock goes and talks about how, how inflation is the number one concern. Sorry, Michelle. That's simply irreconcilable with the fact that you've got negative real interest rates. So don't go and talk about you, you care about inflation when inflation's running rampant inflation's six percent us is half of our inflation rate and they got a higher a higher uh, interest rate and we're importing inflation because they run it maintain this idiotically low uh interest rate policy which is killing the australian dollar so the rba have been asleep at the wheel for 15 years they continue to be asleep at the wheel michelle bullock's never had a job outside the rba in her life she literally went from uni to the rba and is still there phil Lowe never worked anywhere outside the rba so the last and maybe Glenn Stevens is the same, but certainly the last two governors have never had a real job. They don't even work at the bakery. So how are these clowns determined, telling us what to do? All right, but why is that not like saying, because, you know, I'm generally, uh, I've said this many times before, like I'm much more sympathetic to people that have to fight the challenge of macroeconomics because, like, it's a nightmare and nobody really knows how it works. But um, why is that not different? Like, when you go to a surgeon, you don't say, this surgeon has never had a job outside medicine. They went to medical school and then they... No, but they don't... You know, what, they that's may what have. You, want. you want a surgeon that's, you know, spent 14 years working at a bakery? That's not the surgeon I want. I want to see with some life experience who has a bedside manner as well, in fairness. I, I just want a surgeon that is going <laughs> to perform great surgery and give me a clean um, procedure and a rapid recovery and solve the problem. But also, I never said I want... But a surgeon presumably doesn't work at the same hospital. They may have changed different. Like this is a person who's never worked at a different employer her whole life. I'm not saying a different profession. Like, and and this is a public right, service. Right. 
This is the, they've worked point. for a public employee. She's never been exposed to the private sector. Never, never lived in a real world and is, is controlling the price of money. So it's a fairly important. It's like saying a surgeon who's only ever practiced on cada- cadavers and has never operated on a real person is going to operate on your heart. That's the problem. <laughs> you and I will agree to disagree on the challenges of people that have to, for a living, try to um, manage macroeconomics because I, I think that has got to be one of the hardest jobs, really. I mean, uh, so... You and I are going to agree to disagree. I think my last comment about your remarks on solving the housing crisis with something other than supplies this. Let's say um, you're right and the reason that the price of houses is so expensive is because all of these externalities, let's call them, economic externalities. Um, Why then can the average income household not afford to buy into that? Because ultimately it's supply and demand. And if everybody's got access to all of these fantastic boosters for their spending power, then so should the average household. And if you reduce all of the prices, then why is the average household not going to be in exactly the same position just on a supply and demand basis? But 60, 67% of people own their house and I think a third rent. So most people do buy and they stress themselves they stress themselves to the limit and that's why we talk about people can barely and that's why that's why interest rates aren't as high as they should be because the RBA is worried about tipping these house owners into insolvency so they're more that's my, my whole point the RBA is more concerned about protecting existing house owners than than worrying about people who don't own houses and that's that's every and and the, and, the, the, and people love boasting about how expensive their house is so you go to the, the old dinner party conversation my house is worth x million when all that does is means your kids can't afford to buy a house. So it's short-sighted, it's, it's, it's greedy, it's selfish, and it doesn't help anyone. We can find something to agree on. Let's agree that we should have payroll tax exemptions for, for regional centres. <laughs> well, I think we agree. I think we agree this is a massive problem. I, I certainly agree with your initial points. I think that they're 100% right. And we may disagree on the cause, but I think we both want it solved. And I think on that, we'll take a quick break and move on to our second story about Tesla. Adir, what's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with? Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how um, complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions. And it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that. We're the same. I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. We actually use them at Luxury Escapes and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically. We also use them in a business called Bookwell, which I used to chair. And the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader, almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Mad Paws, Camplify, and Autoguru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1-300-121-261 or go to www.portal.ventures. For our next story, we look at Tesla, the world's now second largest EV maker, which had a terrible week after announcing less than inspiring results in an earnings call last Wednesday. Tesla shares ended the week down 15% and remain around half their 2021 peak, but they're up 96% this year. 
Investors reacted negatively after Elon Musk announced that the business reported lower revenue, lower profits, and lower margins. Musk was also pessimistic on production of the long-awaited Cybertruck, noted, we dug our own grave with Cybertruck, and that it'll be a year to 18 months before it becomes a positive cash flow contributor. Are you a Tesla driver? I don't don't know if I've ever asked for this. I've never driven a Tesla. I've been driven in it. Remember I told you I get picked up by Ubers that are Tesla drivers? And I find the backslip tremendously uncomfortable. But I've never driven a Tesla. But people that have driven them or do drive them, they – no one I've ever met has done anything other than rave about driving a Tesla. Although some of the people I know that drive Teslas are replacing their cars now and they're not buying another Tesla, but everybody seems to rave about driving a Tesla. Do you drive <laughs> Don't you just ride and run everywhere I in your life? Do I, mean, I don't, I don't drive car. that much, but I've got a Tesla 3, which is the cheapest sort of Tesla. And I'll... I'll, I'll <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, <laughs> my was saying to me a couple of weeks ago, she goes, you sound a bit cheap on the show. <laughs> well, compared to our dear, maybe I am. The guy who buys that $3,000 no, gold-encrusted luggage, no, I'm cheap. But, yeah, compared to the average avocado you're, renter. Mate, I wouldn't say that you sound cheap. I think you are somebody that's right. very focused on Yeah, that's on very fair. That's, very that a, fair. that's a good summary of you, isn't it? Not cheap. If you thought something was going to – there would be a situation where – Paying a significant amount more would result in a much better, disproportionately better outcome. You pay more. Uh, 100%. I reckon the Tesla 3, pound for pound, is the best value thing I've ever bought. I can't think... Like, it's. I think it's like 65 grand now, whatever it is. Obviously, you can pay more to get the longer range performance stuff, but you don't really need it. It is... The drive, it is unbelievable. It is quicker than almost every car other than like sort of Ferraris and, and that sort of level car. Like nobody beats you off the start. It is... Unbelievable! Like it, it costs you always nothing to charge. It's unbelievably good, to, fun to drive. It, it's super. Like you got Spotify on there. You got all that stuff on the big dashboard. It is. And you, I'm not a huge. I'm, I'm mixed on Elon Musk. I like some things. I don't like things, something about him. But Tesla product, I would never not buy an electric car again. They are. I don't. Do you drive? Do you drive an EV or you, you drive a combustion steel? I don't, but I think I'm going to end up heading to an EV with for my next car. I'm a bit torn about it, to be honest. But um, you have to. You'll drive my car, and I don't think I'll you'll ever drive it. a combustion again. Yeah, you'll love it. It is. Yeah, I'm not a big car guy at all. Like I'm a, I'm nonchalant. I'll take or leave it. But I'll, so we've got an X5 and their other car, which I think was more expensive at the mm-hmm. time. And I hate. It's like driving a bloody tank. It's. I hate it. It's BMW rip you off every time you try and. Yeah, but it's practical. I find the Tesla more practical, to be honest. And so when you – because I was going to say to you, like, is the Tesla going to be, like, the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world? Because just to keep with the polarity approach to life. And <laughs> you answered me. You said it's the best value thing you've ever bought. So that's yeah. a pretty big endorsement. Let me ask you this question because I'm not very familiar with EVs, but what do you charge it from? Is it, like, phase three power or something? You can you can charge it on a normal – you can literally use a normal – plug if you want it just takes a bit longer well how long is that going to take to charge oh probably about 18 hours um, oh, well, but that's like overnight and a bit more but like you, you, i can charge it at work they have the slightly faster charges it takes about seven hours and if you go to a supercharger yeah. it's like half an hour so right. and they're getting it's all getting better but I, at home i've got like a slightly better than normal power and it takes me overnight it will charge so i'll plug it in at six o'clock in the evening by 6 a.m the next day it's full i see we talk about tesla let's go back to that tesla results which weren't great uh and i think that i think the issue tesla has and whilst i rave about the cars and i love evs i'm not sure they've got a great we talk about competitive advantage on the show and other listeners know i'm a 
ultimately the value of businesses is how big its moat is. And Tesla were, were certainly first to market. I think they still have the best tech. I think BYD, Build Your Dreams, the Chinese equivalent, which Warren Buffett is a shareholder in, has gone past Tesla in terms of units manufactured. I think Tesla's still got more revenue because their units are more expensive. They're everywhere, those BYDs. Like when I'm in the supermarket car park, they are everywhere. Yeah, I've never driven one. But I think the problem with Tesla is it's, it's had a lead, but... I think everyone's catching up. As you and you made the point, people who bought Tesla are buying other cars. I think Tesla has got people to accept EVs because they're so good. But I'm not sure the difference between Tesla and other EVs is that significant. This is what I've noticed about Teslas. And when I've asked owners, they've agreed with this and then made excuses for it and then told me why it's still great. But this is my observation about Teslas. When you look at um, Volkswagen as a company, like or Toyota, but let's say Volkswagen. They know how to make cars. Like, that is what they do. And so, like, everything about them, especially because they're a German company, is, let's call it precision engineered. A Tesla, it feels to me like when the door closes, it's not perfectly aligned, or maybe one side is, and one side, the sill is not quite right. You don't agree? No, I think you're being a bit harsh there. So I've had a Tesla now for almost three years. I'm yet to have it serviced. I actually called them and said, do I not need a service? And they said, no. You don't, like, can you imagine, like BMW will get you in, they charge you two grand, they force you to have a service, they call you up, they hassle you. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I, I haven't found that at all. I think it's actually pretty well built. The software is really good. I think it's, it's a pound for pound as good as anything I've ever bought. Uh, but I, I would quite, maybe I will buy a different EV next time because I love EVs, but I haven't actually tested the other ones to compare. When I look at Tesla as a business, so I, th- I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, on the show, I said that you should never short a religion. And so years ago, I knew someone that was very bearish on Tesla and they shorted Tesla and I th- and they're very, very smart at investing. And I thought that means they were probably right in their short and their thesis. But my comment was, I just feel like the love for Tesla is going to mean that it's never really going to go down as much as it deserves to as a business. Today, I think that Tesla's main asset, or maybe some of the, the assets they have is, I think their main asset is their brand, and then they have some battery asset as well and some know-how asset. But I think that really what they have going for them is this brand that is better than brands like BYD and anyone else. But the challenge is that Elon Musk's foray mm. into this X-madness is like exactly it offends precisely the Tesla customer. He's managed to perfectly find he said what is the thing that I could buy and do to it that would perfectly target my Tesla customer and get them offside and he nailed it. He nailed it yeah. and I think he's yeah. really damaged the Tesla brand. 100% has damaged Tesla. It is the Alan Joyce of of US car manufacturers oh, in terms of damaging brands. So it's you could you actually I, I couldn't agree more. I think you're right. I think the I think the challenge with Tesla is that they just do lack a competitive advantage. I think it's a great product. And, and I think I agree with you in a slightly different sense. I, th- I don't think you should ever bet against a great product. And you talk about religion, I talk about great products. Don't bet against Apple. I, one of the great idiotic articles I ever wrote, probably the dumbest thing I ever wrote, I think it was about 2007. And I said, I wrote an article saying, I think Apple's overpriced because I thought, oh, the iPod, this is pre-iPhone. And that was actually in 2005. So the, I said, the iPod's about to, like, it's not that great a product. And then like a month later, they released the iPhone and, and that was it. Uh, and I think it's gone up like 20X since then or something like that. So I still leave that one going. And that, that was why you don't bet against great products. I think that's right. I mean, as for this cyber truck, I mean, you have to say Elon Musk, one of his amazing skills is that he has the ability 
to make these promises about products on a particular timeline, completely ignore the timeline and blow it out by a huge amount, but keep investors believing. And then the thing that makes him different to like all the shyster CEOs (laughs) is that eventually he delivers the product and it's usually amazing. And so that is why people keep the faith. And so, uh, look, the Cybertruck, like, I, I don't, I'm not a driver of that kind of product. I don't know enough about it. But do you think he's going to deliver something amazing just very late? Or do you think there's some other fundamental issue with it and he's not going to deliver it? Well, I think the issue is it looks really weird and ugly. I'm not, like, Tesla's are generally a nice-looking car. I don't, I'm not everybody likes it. They're generally a pretty cool, sleek car. Cybertruck just looks weird and it's like the DeLorean from Back to the Future. It just looks bizarre. Yeah. What is it? Is it a pickup truck like a ute? I think so. I think it's something like that. I, I can. It's not an SUV because I've got SUVs. It must be like a ute. It just looks this weird sort of pointy yeah. thing. It just looks a, a strange yeah, car. That, uh, but unless you're a massive Elon Musk fan, I'm not sure who would drive that thing. So, so I've thought for a long time, I've really had this view for a long time, that um, ultimately it's going to be hard for Tesla to compete with the very large established manufacturers once EVs mainstream. And I thought the best outcome that Tesla could have hoped for is that they would be acquired by one of these big companies as a way to get the brand and to get into it. But the problem is that Tesla has become too expensive for anyone to buy. I mean, it was, it was valued at more than any other car company. It was, it was valued at like more than everything else put together times right. two or something like that. So it's and not even close. And so maybe what Tesla should have done at that point in time is started gobbling right. up the rest yeah, of the right. industry with their stock because, because I, I, fe- I felt like, you know, there is this pattern in technology. Like Tesla, definitely I'd put it in the tech company category. There is this pattern where you have these disruptive technologies, tech companies that come along and they bring a totally new way of doing things and they bring beautiful product and they just shake up the industry and change the whole paradigm of an industry but um, eventually, the rest of the industry does get it together. And it might take 10 years and it might take 20 years, but they do get it together. And when they do, that initial disruptor, they better have a lot of strings to their bow if they're going to be competing in that space. And generally, in my view, the most reliable way to a payday for these disruptors is to get bought into one of the bigger companies and it's hard to know exactly where Tesla is going to go over the next 10 years from here because Toyota, Volkswagen, the Chinese companies, the Korean companies, like these are really high-quality, well-run businesses with some problems. I think Tesla, to me, it, they're going to have to pull another pretty significant rabbit out of the hat and disrupt the next thing. Well, Toyota is really interesting because Toyota – Stepped like Toyota with Prius was ahead of the game in hybrid, and then they never got involved with EVs. They've been working on what's called solid state, which I think can charge in like I don't know twenty minutes and gives you a thousand a thousand kilometers. So they haven't quite got there yet. So Toyota is a really interesting one. I think you're right. I think there's there's just a lack of of differentiation there, and we'll certainly and the market I think is sensing that market's not willing to bet against a great product, which Tesla is, but. It's definitely seeing some weakness and, and we'll see what happens there. And we'll move on to our next story, which is Netflix. And last week, Netflix announced that September quarter results were staggeringly good. Net income, and that's actual profits, not EBITDA or some other make-believe number, were up 20% year on year to 1.7 billion US for the quarter. It was even able to add 9 million new subscribers 
while increasing pricing by upwards of 15% for its premium plan. Netflix's share price has more than doubled from $175 per share last year to be almost $400 a share now, giving it market cap of $175 billion US. We should note, though, that Netflix's share price does remain below its manic COVID peak of $690 per share, but it has been one of the best performers on NASDAQ in the past year. Netflix has also turned into a cash torrent, with free cash flow increasing from $1.6 billion in 2022 to a forecast US $6.5 billion this year. Meanwhile, the writer strike has meant that one of its key input costs, being labour, has fallen significantly, and it benefits from its huge content library. So, Adir, what are your thoughts on the rise and fall and rise of the great Netflix? I think Netflix is one of the most amazing tech businesses of its generation. I mean, that company is probably 25 or 30 years old by now, is my guess. It was a 1990. It's DVD mail business. was about 96, I think it started. Yeah. So So 27 years. Yeah. And so, you know, this is a company that um, where the founders had an incredible vision that was ahead of its time, which was to stream. So they start off by saying, let's solve an easy problem because we can't solve the problem we really want to solve. And so they solve late fees as a problem. I mean, nobody under the age of 30 even knows what a late fee is, but obviously... Well, I think, didn't Reed Hastings get the idea, or this is the this is the, the myth, that he got the idea because he had this massive bill from Blockbuster for a late fee and said, this is ridiculous, and came on out to solve that. I think that might be an equation that fit the model in retrospect, Probably. if you get what I'm Probably. saying. And so... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but what I think is that um, they were very – I think that idea of saying we've got this revolutionary v- vision but we're too early. So if we do it now, we're just going to be dead for being too early. So let's go solve another problem that we can solve to start getting customers and start building the business. That is, that I think that is one of the smartest moves I've ever come across in business. And then as the internet – uh, improves and streaming becomes a possibility, they decide they're going to be a tech platform for streaming other people's content. And to me, like that is the business that was the dream of Netflix. And if you fast forward today, they're actually part tech business, but bigger part in terms of their spend, content business. So instead of just being this platform that everybody was going to put their content on, their business is basically a business of original content. And that is um, – and I thought they were no chance of succeeding in that business, to be honest with you. If you look at it today, Disney is the biggest spender on content. I think they spend $30 bill USD on content a year. But they've got like all – like they've got Marvel they bought and, a bunch and of stuff Lucas as well, yeah. and whatever else. And number two – And Fox. And number two, I think, is like, like – um, maybe it could be Warner Brothers – I'm pretty Warner? sure Netflix spends more than Warner. I don't now, think so. Oh, because be Warner, Warner's got Discovery and all that stuff. Because they merged with Discovery, and obviously HBO. But yeah, and so uh, they, it's possible. Let's say they spend twenty bill. I think they spend about twenty bill. But I think okay. Netflix is seventeen bill. Yeah, US, that's right. US dollars. Is that right? And so I think it's seven or eighteen. Yeah, that is pretty incredible. And if you said to me that, um, and so I think Amazon spends ten bill USD on Prime, but Prime is just a video business to make sure that people keep spending on Prime so yeah, that they keep buying absolutely. from the retail store, but w- yeah. which is incredible in its own way. But if you would have said to – I was sure seven or eight years ago, maybe even less than that, maybe five years ago, pre-COVID, I was sure that Netflix was not going to survive as an independent business because the content costs were just going to cripple that business that ultimately was a tech platform. And what yep. we see today is it is actually valued at more than Disney. It generates more yeah. free cash than Disney on much better margins than Disney. And I think that Netflix 
may end up being the consolidator of a chunk of the industry, frankly. I just think this is one of the most amazing uh, business stories and, for me, not a predictable outcome of the last kind of 20 years. I find the whole thing totally remarkable. That's a great scenario. I think that that Reed Hastings will probably go down as one of the better CEOs of of our generation. I think what what he's done – and it's really hard to reinvent yourself because you're taking you to cannibalize yourself because you're taking a business that, that is a good business and saying, I'm going to destroy that business and create another one. So as you said, Reed started that mail order thing as Scott Galloway, as Scott Galloway notes, he used the US Postal Service and leveraged off the US Postal Service's uh, massive reach to create that mail, mail order thing, which was, which was really cute. But there was a bunch of, remember there's a bunch of competitors there. They all died off. And hate, remember, and hate when Reed... There was one in Australia called Easy DVD. I know that because I, I, in 2000, oh, it would have been before 2000, in the late 90s, I had this business with um, a guy <laughs> called Michael Borsky, who's now a Kate King's Council Q- senior counsel. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. And um, he was, you know, he's got a background as a coder, so he's, a very, he's actually a very amazing guy. <laughs> and, so, um, and so we built this thing called supershop.com.au, which was basically an early directory with all of these online retailers in it. And I remember, this would be, I reckon it was 95, no, 96. And um, I remember Roses Only was in there and Adore Beauty was oh, yeah. in there. These are early, early businesses. Wow. And um, and Easy DVD was there, I remember, and it was like this early competitor to, to Netflix. There's, the Telstra had one, there's a bunch of them. Uh, I remember I used to you subscribe, get it a month free, and then, then unsubscribe. Uh, which people saw, but uh, so he had that. He, he then cannibalized himself. Remember when they went from the mail order to the, and they turned off mail order, or he, or he didn't turn it off, but he 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 made streaming yeah, and streaming yeah. was sort of the, the bigger part of it, and he got a, a bunch of uh, criticism for that. And streaming was obviously that was a, and we talk about the Tesla the Tesla stuff just before, and there are some trends in business that are you call it iterative on the previous thing. So you go from a a normal phone to an iPhone. So iPhones are better, but it's still essentially a phone. So it didn't really change that much. But if you look at, and then sometimes there are massive changes. So I think when you went from horse and cart to automobile, that was a massive change. And you go from automobile to EV, it's kind of a more iterative change. And Reed Hastings captured what I think was a massive change in that was basically the cut, the cord cutting over the top to, to streaming. So if you think back even 10 years, if you wanted to watch a TV show, you had to watch it in the news at six o'clock, something at 7.30, who wants to be a millionaire at eight, whatever it was, the footy show was 8.30. Everybody, you had a show that it was a certain time and you had, if you missed it, you missed it or you had to tape it. And that was that. Or you could use the cable, so pay, pay a fortune for cable and you'd have to pay for 150 channels. This is obviously in the States and Australia. And if you didn't want, and only wanted three channels, but I had to pay 150 and you pay this ridiculous tax. And then Netflix has completely changed all that. So he's disaggregated the completely how people view content. And it's just – so he, he got that horse and car to car moment with over with the with the streaming. And then he – as you said, he then cannibalized. So Netflix basically just bought a bunch of sort of cheap content and put it on, on the platform. And then he had the genius move. And the first one was House of Cards, which that was the Kevin Spacey political show. And that was just an – uh, amazing pivot again where he started creating I think I started with two billion and, and went from there so now they've got the best of both they've got the, this great content so from or from from the Witcher to sex ed to all this in, amazing the crown obviously all this great content so you you sign up to get access to that because they have water cooler shows the last dance all that stuff and then they've got do you know what the number one streamed show was last year on any platform in the last year what any on any platform was I don't watch a lot of um 
like a lot of, I'm going to call it TV, but you know what I mean, video entertainment. But I'm going to say Squid Game. How about that? So I'll, I'll rephrase the question because I phrased it wrong. So if you look at the week of September, in September 18, what, were the, what do you think the top streaming show by minutes watched was in the US? Oh, last month? I don't, you tell me. I, don't, I have no idea. Suits. You know that show with uh, um, <laughs> Meghan Markle and a bunch of other people. So this is a ten. I watched a few episodes of that show. It's a good show, but it's ten years old. It was on like NBC Universal. Oh, yeah. This number two oh. was Elemental Disney, which Disney released it. Number three was a show called Virgin River on Netflix. I haven't heard of it. And guess what number four was? Go on. Take a guess. It's on. It's on Disney. And I was offended that you called Suits a good show. But it was pretty good. But, yeah, tell good. me number four. Uh, number oh. four was Bluey. Bluey, the Australian show that could. The great, the great missed opportunity of stuff. The, the great ABC missed opportunity, Bluey. Absolutely. BBC made, made the profit yeah. out of it, I think, in the end. But uh, So that's, I thought that was that's a remarkable. But what Netflix now has done is Netflix bought Suits from NBC and has turned it into the number one watch show on, on any platform. Oh, they bought the show. Simply due to, they bought the rights to the show. I think they oh also bought God. Friends in a similar way. Uh, RIP Chandler. But but yeah, so it's, it's incredible. And so I think it's built an unbelievable business that – and I think this is a business that has a moat. I, I, I still think HBO, which is obviously owned by Warner, is the best at producing content, especially on a per dollar basis. If you look at what Warner, what HBO does is, is next level from Succession to Game of Thrones to all that stuff they do uh, is, is, is the best. But Warner Brothers Discovery is a, prob- a, a fairly challenged business with, with a mountain of debt, whereas Netflix is spinning off cash, raising prices. It's got a global reach. So you see all the US actors who obviously been striking for yeah. court three months. Netflix is producing shows as it wants overseas. Yep. Well, so everyone else has, can't, has got nothing. So the share price of Disney has been smashed and all these Warner Brothers have been smashed. Netflix is just flying because it can produce shows elsewhere and has seen its costs. So when uh, you t- drop massively. So when you talk about the horse and cart to the car moment, what the way I would characterize that is that um, within this industry is that uh, the the digital revolution one of the one of the dividends of the digital revolution has been the focus on uh, the purity or the essence of the content that you're actually interested in and the removal of the packaging that was required to deliver that content. And so obviously we know about that in streaming and in music, like that's two obvious ones. But in a way, businesses like Seek and REA were were kind of the same. Like you had this content which was these classifieds, but there was no way to get that to people. And so you had to piggyback on, on something that had a very large distribution to people and the obvious thing was a newspaper. But really... You know, although the newspapers were the custodians of these rivers of gold for decades or maybe for a century plus, they didn't really have an inherent right to have this river of gold. They were just a convenient package to deliver the core content. And what happened with the the information revolution is that you had the decoupling of the content that was actually where the value was from the delivery mechanism. And I think the fact that Reed Hastings, and there was also a partner that he had when he started Netflix, whose name I've forgotten. Uh, Um, Randolph. Yeah, uh, that's right. You're right. Mark Randolph. Mark Randolph. So the vision and the prescience to understand that really the pearl was the content itself and everything else, the TV network and the, and the, or the DVD, that was just the oyster shell, but we just really want the <laughs> pearl, right? Like that, yeah. that was quite incredibly prescient. For me, the real next question for Netflix is 
what do they do now? Like they're generating, you said, six billion US dollars a year or something in free cash, which is which is remarkable on margins that are like fifteen or twenty percent cash margins on a business. I feel like they need to go and try and consolidate up this industry because when you look at this industry, what I mean, there was a golden year, a golden era of streaming, which I think is coming to an end, where basically yep. people were spending infinite amounts of money just yep. trying to compete on content. That feels like it's coming to an end. I think the in- increased interest rates probably put a bit of an end to that as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, so now, but now what you've got is, if you speak to most people, I was at a I was at a wedding re- in a couple of weeks ago that you teased me about when I'm I sure came you were dressed my like wedding. a yes, dressed like a right. prince for that. <laughs> that's a prince, yeah. Not sure what prince of a very poor country. And so <laughs> um, and so at that wedding, oh, I don't know, I was talking at a table with someone and they were bemoaning the fact that there were all of these different platforms they had to pay for. Two of them were just for sport. I think one was KO that was talking about just for sport. And and mm. so I think this idea of this like fr- platform fragmentation, it's starting to drive people nuts. Yeah. And there's going to have to be a consolidation of that. And I think Netflix, just like what I said about Tesla, whereas Tesla, Tesla should have bought up some genuine competitors when they, their share price was crazy. I think Netflix should be taking this opportunity to start consolidating up the industry. They're probably thought through this much better I – mean, they definitely have much better than I have strategically about what's next in this industry. But I think now is the time for them because, you know, I talk a lot about you have these like golden moments where you're loved and this is your opportunity. Netflix it has their opportunity now. Like they are kind of head and shoulders above the, the rest of the industry at this moment. They've got to take advantage of this window of opportunity to take the next big step in their business, I think. Yeah, I think the logical one is HBO. Uh, so Warner buying HBO from Warner. That's HBO are the they've won more Emmys than anyone else. They're, they're the masters of content still. Well, Netflix is a better business, but the content that HBO produces, which is on in Australia on binge for the moment, I think there's talk that that Warner opens up here directly. But yeah, that's that's the big one. I think you're right. I think and it still is priced pretty high. They're, they're doing games. Obviously, we know your love for games, and so Netflix does games as well. Oh, the Netflix gaming—that's <laughs> a terrible gaming platform. This is the aficionado's I mean, view. I for the even, average person, I don't even want to talk. That was—that's—it's. It looks like I've actually offended you by mentioning that junk. No, they, <laughs> they, did, they did not know. They've got a lot, a lot of work to do with that platform. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll move on from that. <laughs> I've touched a nerve, I think. Warner, Warner is <laughs> yeah. Warner is very cheap. I mean, when I say cheap, you know, it's just a collection of some billions of dollars behind the couch. But like, it's only a twenty-five yeah. billion dollar business. One seventy-five US, Netflix? yeah, yeah. Well, so, so they could easily buy that. But I mean, they pay a thirty percent premium on it. They're a bit north of. But they wouldn't want half. They only want HBO. All the other stuff, Discovery, they don't want. So you only want to take that the jewels and the crown. I don't know how much that HBO would cost, but. That's all I want. I also think one of the big disappointments in a way of this industry has been, I would brutally say, the failure of Disney+. Plus. You have this company that bought up really some of the very best back catalogue assets on planet Earth, well, definitely in the Western world, but probably beyond that. And they have not been able to find a way to monetize those effectively and have ended up spending these insane amounts of money on new content to the detriment of the whole economic model. And so, again, I like, I'm not sure Disney's pathway through to profitability on their Disney Plus business, but it, th- that the, the abject failure to date 
of that business. I know they're picking up subscribers and maybe they'll turn it around, but I don't think the leveraging of the back catalogue has played out the way anybody in that business was hoping it would. It cost, I mean, they lost a CEO because of it. I think you, I think Bob Chapek wasn't a great CEO, but yeah, uh, and Bob Iger hasn't done a great job in this second reincarnation either. So Disney is definitely challenged. The great theme park business, but everything else is problematic. I think we're running out of time, so let's move on to a quick, uh, a really quick goy to watch this week. Play the music, Mike. Am I Probably the main topic is is Todd Samson, obviously our favourite t-shirt wearing director. Uh, he, the word I'm hearing on the street is there's around 30 to 40 percent of votes being cast against him, which isn't technically enough to remove him, but like it's he had to be pretty brave to go up against that because I don't think I've ever seen a a no vote that large actually go through. So credit to Todd, he's certainly got. Um, got guts. Uh, well, I heard one sort of speculation I heard was a reason why he's sort of sticking around, notwithstanding the incredible brand damage he's doing to himself is obviously Todd's a Canadian guy. Uh, and Qantas directors, as you know, get, I think at least a couple of business class trips for them and their family anywhere in the world. So my, by my reckoning, Todd's getting potentially a couple of hundred grand of Qantas flights on top of his fee every year. I reckon he can, he's got a pretty good media career. I reckon he doesn't need free flights. But then why would he be hanging around in and in, in copying this criticism? Listen, I, I think firstly, let me just express my <laughs> disappointment about something. You describe him as your favourite t-shirt <laughs> oh, no, director. Going. Well you're a you're a suit wearing director these you're an institute suit wearing director, so it's And I wear t shirts to every board meeting. <laughs> No, I don't wear it to board meetings. So you know, let's you know, let's, I need a bit more moral support than that. But but this is how I feel about sticking around as a Qantas director. I know I've said this every time. I'll say it again. I would love to be a director of Qantas. This is not a pitch. I'm no chance of. Being well, they a should. They should hire. I would 100 percent support your bid for Qantas chair. Oh, that would be great. And then I'd come on the show and you'd say, "Shift and oh, watch." Qantas directors. <laughs> they just well, yeah, shift and watch. Exactly. That's just what I'm looking for in my life. Thank you very much. I, I think Quant, being a Qantas director has got to be one of the best directorships Absolutely. in Absolutely. Such a prestigious company. For that reason, for the free 100 grand of free flights a year. No, no. It's such a prestigious company. It's such a great it is. Oh, brand. Great. I know the brand's got problems now, but it's such a great brand. It's such a, you know, can you imagine when you turn yeah. up somewhere and you're a director of yeah, Qantas? Yeah, well, Most of them are yeah. not like such well-known people. Todd Sampson's got a TV career, so people know who he is. But you turn up somewhere and people say, what do you do? Yeah. And you say, blah, 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 blah. And yeah. I'm a director of Qantas. Come on, that is pretty spectacular, right? So I think um, nobody wants to give up a directorship of Qantas. I think you have to – they take you out in a box in that, in that place. So I don't think – Well, I think Jacqueline Hay and Maxime Brenner both – obviously Richard Goyder resigned, uh, as, as you know all too well. But I'm surprised he's staying on. I think it's it's brave. I'll give him credit. It's certainly brave to go against 40% of shareholders and, and five proxy advisors who all think you probably should go. So credit to Todd for for having the, the guts to stick around. Uh, I'm not sure he should, but credit to him for that. I hope he gets through. I hope he gets through. You know, I've said this before. I know, I know all of the arguments about why he should resign. I, I also want to – but I, let me – I'm going to tell you a conversation that I had with my mum – during the week, which is very smart. We were talking about something, about a company. I won't say the company. And she was um, quite indignant about some of the behaviour of this company. 
and she was. We should get your mum on the show. And she, she's. Oh my god. Oh my god. That would. I mean, but our listenership would like quintuple. But you, you would lose <laughs> one of the hosts. <laughs> and so, um, and so, and she was telling me about. She was quite indignant about this, and she said like the CEO should go or what, or chairman should go, whatever it was. And I said, you know what my answer to her was? Like this company had not done anything illegal. They just didn't treat people well. It was like a Qantas kind of thing, right? Yep. Didn't treat. Yep. And I said to her, you shouldn't get so worked up about this. And she said, why not? And I said, it's only business. It's just people trying to make money. And yes, like what they did was not good, but the business will suffer for it and it'll find a way to recover. And, you know, there are really big issues in this world. And I'm not down, like, you know, business is the essence of the capitalist society that we live in and I'm not downplaying its importance. I think there is some importance in it, but I think this idea that um, somehow company leaders, especially of big companies, are magical people who um, are these, like, uh, these the pinnacle of morality and good behaviour and whatever it is. Like, I just think none of it's that serious. And I personally, you know, I don't get as worked up about these things as you. I think mostly they're just human beings making decisions. It's tough to make good decisions. They make some bad decisions. And when they've got something good, like most of us, they hold on for dear life to keep it. That, that's generally my view on these things. Well, I think when you're next on holiday, I think we know who's going to replace you on the show. So we've got that one sort out. Mrs. Schiffman in... Our dear Schiffman out, I think we'll be there. She's very amusing. She'll, I mean, she'll get a lot of laughs. But <laughs> you won't, once she gets going, you won't be getting – even you won't be getting a word in. Even with your speed of speech, you won't be getting a word in. So, yeah, yeah be careful what you wish for. <laughs> On that note, I think we'll bid farewell. Uh, I hope you have a good week this week, our dear. We'll uh, look forward to speaking next week. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show – please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.